Poya. This is Robbie. Welcome to Uncharted and Eclectic. And thanks for joining us again. This week's episode is brought to you by Oracle NetSuite. Oracle NetSuite, I think, solves a really important problem that a lot of startups, business owners, executives face, which is how do you get the information that you need instantly all in one place? Before we upgraded the Oracle NetSuite at my last startup, it used to take us a lot of time to pull the information reports that we needed for our quarterly investment meeting or the report that we wanted to send to both internal employees as well as stakeholders and shareholders at the end of the month. Upgrade to Oracle NetSuite today so you can get the visibility and control you need over your financials, HR, inventory, and everything you need in one place that you can access instantly. Let NetSuite show you how they'll benefit your business with a free product tour at netsuite.com scale. Schedule your free product tour right now at netsuite.com scale. That is netsuite.com slash scale. Well, welcome back to another episode of Uncharted and Eclectic. Um, we have a very special guest joining us today from the recently acquired segment, um, Abbas Hader Ali. Uh, thanks for joining us and thanks for jumping on the podcast. Thanks for having me. Awesome. Well, Abbas, we always like to ask folks who come on to the podcast to give us just like a little bit of context into where you grew up, um, what your parents are like, if you got any siblings, kind of like where you're from um, and how that's maybe shaped you a bit to what you're doing today. Yeah. So, so it's funny that the where you're from question is a little complicated. Um, you'd think it wouldn't be like, ah, it's a simple question. Where do you answer? Um, I moved around a lot when we were growing up. So I was actually born in the Middle East um, in a small town outside of the capital of the United Arab Emirates. So that's sort of where I was born. I lived there for a few years and then my family moved to Africa. So I lived it, I grew up in Zambia for a time. Um, and then uh, as we sort of were going into high school, uh, my family decided we were moving to Canada. So it was a choice between Canada and Australia. And that's what they tell me now. And I'm like, I don't know, like that seems like a, a vast difference. And it's like, what's the difference between Canada? And they picked a place because we had one aunt here. So that's how we wound up moving to Canada when I, when I was starting high school. Um, and I did high school and university in Toronto. Um, and from there, that's where I had my first tech gig. And then um, one day I picked up the phone from a recruiter uh, and uh, she convinced me to take a free trip to Washington, D.C. And all of a sudden I was stateside. Um, and that's sort of that happened. Uh, that was my first tech startup gig. I was there for a number of years. And then most recently I moved out to, uh, uh, to the Bay Area. Awesome. So you, I have to ask, um, what did your... What did your parents do? Were they just kind of like spinning the globe and saying, let's go to Africa next? Or was that like work that maybe pulled them there? Or what, what, what was it that kind of moved you guys around in those early days? Yeah, so actually my, my dad did what would, what would today be described as startup operations for financial institutions. So um, he found himself in the Middle East and in Africa because they were sort of uh, both those areas at those points, particular points in time, were just building out private banking infrastructure. So, um, so basically it was, um, it, it, he was basically doing startup operations shortly after they found oil in the, United, in the UAE, which seems weird. That tells you how long ago that was. So he sort of found himself there. And then as the uh, industry is developing in Africa, he moved to Zambia and took us with him out there as well to do the same thing. So I guess in some ways, startup stuff has been part of, part of my growing up. Very cool. How has Africa changed since you were growing up there? 
Um, it's changed a lot. So I would say the single biggest change is driven by a piece of technology, and that's by mobile technology. Um, so, you know, in terms of when we were there, a lot of the things that, that were problems about, you know, inequity, distribution, not enough infrastructure, they sort of leapfrogged and went straight to mobile. So there's like a whole generation that skipped all like the infrastructure issues that we thought they needed to solve before there was the opportunities that, that people needed to have. But that sort of skipped forward. Um, and I think like, uh, you know, the 5G will be sort of the next similar one that, that has a similar effect there as well. So yeah, that's probably the single biggest technology change. Um, and I'd say there was a lot more travel, a lot more, um, you know, uh, connectivity than there was in the past. It used to be sort of like, wow, Africa, like, you know, you're either there or you're not. And, and now it's just a lot more, uh, a lot more open and interconnected throughout the world. Yeah, as you're talking, I, uh, I I resonate in a lot of ways. And it is not this is this podcast is not about me in any way. But I I lived in Dubai, Sharjah, um, yeah. briefly, right? So know the area very very well. Moved stateside, so didn't do the Canada the switch. But then I had a really decent stint at uh, Washington D.C. as well. So why am I bringing all this up? I know once you got into tech, you've had some really successful runs right at, yeah. at riverbed and then x matters and then about a year ago in 2019 you decided to take a sabbatical so it's a two-part question one how much do you think of you being a global citizen and growing up in different areas like did that in any way you think had any influence on the sabbatical or was it completely something else because at least for myself like i'm a i'm, I'm very much a global citizen so yeah my way of wanting to kind of get busy outside of work is always looking forward to like travel, whatever that may be, right, with my partner. So curious if that was your thing or like how, how what made you maybe take the sabbatical? Like what was the thing that kind of made you decide to take some time off? Yeah, so um, so I guess starting off with the question of like, why decide to take a sabbatical? So, you know, when you're sort of in a leadership role, and at that time I was at X Matters, um, I was CTO leading all of our customer facing tactical teams, our product innovation teams. So there was sort of a lot of things that were on my plate. Um, and at some point you sort of are like, in those roles, you need to be all in or, or, you, or you can't do it. And I was sort of reaching the point where I was like, having to expend energy to be all in. And that was no longer fair to my team. And I'd, and I'd done a lot of roles there, learned a ton during my time there, made some great friends. Um, but I just kind of like woke up and I was like, I think it's time. And that's actually been the case. Every transition I've made in my career, it sounds really trite, but it's been essentially like an overnight uh, switch that flips. It's everything is great. Then you're like, okay, it's time. It doesn't mean it happens the next day, but you know, it's time to start planning for it. Um, so I planned out for a long period of time with our CEO, with everybody at the company to know that this was coming to an end and I was going to basically take a year off. And that's what I did. And basically I needed to recharge. Um, and one of the risks in being in Silicon Valley and, and just, you know, the Bay Area in general is that as soon as people know you're available, you start getting pulled into things, whether it's like angel investing, advising, strategy consulting, hey, come, let's hang out, go meet with this person. And before you know it, you're sort of pulled right back into things. Um, and for myself, the only way I found to really unplug and recharge is to go to a place where my cell phone plan no longer works by default. Um, that's sort of, my, that's sort of my, my reasoning behind it, which means for me, I have to leave North America. Um, and that, so what I would always have done to recharge is go travel. So 
immediately after, like less than a week after I started my sabbatical, we hit the road for a few months. Um, so it was really great timing because we had planned for it. My wife was sort of, her work was prepared to have her away for an extended period of time and we hit the road. And we took off, uh, we took a bunch of places on our, uh, on our bucket list. And, you know, we, we traveled to Egypt, to Jordan, to Turkey. Um, uh, we, we went back, uh, we did a trip to, to back to the UK earlier that year. Um, we fulfilled sort of a promise with, uh, that I'd had um, with my family to go, you know, go visit Saudi Arabia. So we went there as well. So we got to do a lot of great things. Um, we typically have done two new countries every year for as long as my wife and I have been together. Um, and I won't give you a number uh, number of years because at this point that starts to become a, date, a, a dating mechanism, but it's a lot of places. Uh, in fact, 2020 is the first year since we've been together that we will not be able to check that box. But I figure we get to call a, call, call a mulligan for a, for a pandemic. We'll no, yeah, we both have a good excuse. We had, we actually had to cancel a, a, a lot of travel as well. But um, what I guess this is going to sound weird, but how do you make sure to? I I know you alluded to the fact that like you're getting out, but but I think sometimes what happens right when you're out of the game, um, the pace of innovation goes so fast that even being out a couple of months or a year. Like you can really, really feel it, right? And um, I don't think that was the case 10, 15 years ago. I'm not old enough to know, like, I, I, so I don't want to allude to it. But a lot of people that have kind of taken a break in those times, they're like, it's just much different because of the pace of innovation technology yeah. is so different. How did you, not that you didn't keep up, but how did you make sure like you're still maintaining what's going on in the industry, right? Maintaining sure. some of those skill sets so you don't lose out on them. Yeah, so I'm like I sort of um, we were, I was pretty much unplugged from tech for the most part for six months, um, and then that, and then basically coming back in, it's sort of like the, All right, how do you sort of get back into things? To your point, um, and one thing that was really helpful for me is I've maintained these long running mentoring relationships, and those keep me plugged in very much into what's going on. Um, so that's sort of, that's sort of like one connection pathway in, and the second one is um, as sort of as an individual contributor you sort of wind up having to keep up, especially if you're on the product side or the tech side in deep tech, you do have to keep up with these changing paces. But as a leader, that's not necessarily the case. What you're trying to do is not be the best at the technology, but you're trying to be the best at unlocking the potential of your team. Um, and so that is more of an evergreen sort of skill, which being away for you know, a few months doesn't really hurt. And really when I came back for six months of my sabbatical, I was engaged in some strategy consulting work, some advisory work, some investing work. So I would say I wasn't in a full-time role, but my exposure to tech was uh, pretty good. Like I would say it was like my ideal retirement uh, work, uh, you know, workload where I was sort of working about 25 to you know 50% of the time whenever I chose to turn it on. Yeah, that's, that's very well said. I, one of the things I didn't understand, I guess like in my 20s or earlier in my career was just managing my own energy and how that was actually like my responsibility. Like my job wasn't going to tell me how best to manage my energy. They were going to ask for everything I could give. And it was up to me to sort of balance that against what the priorities were. And as I've gotten older, I've kind of realized that like, you know, the people who are, who are um, the best, I think across 
pretty much any industry are the best at like plugged into their own like energy management and sort of like understanding like you were saying earlier when is that flip switch when it's time to like take a step back and go travel and go sort of like recharge and do some different things to like give you different kinds of energy but I want to go back to what you said earlier um, Abbas about uh, mentoring. Um, and, and actually, Poya, I have a question for you. I, I know that the two of you guys met kind of through the Plato ecosystem and have crossed paths there quite a bit mentoring folks, but I guess maybe just to set the terms of the discussion, so to speak, Poya, how would you define mentoring versus coaching? And then I have a question for a boss about how you look at the world from a mentoring perspective. But Poya, tell me, tell me how you define mentoring versus coaching. Yeah, so on, on my end, and boss, feel free to correct me, but my definition of uh, mentoring is when you're seeking somebody else's kind of feedback or guidance, they've been there, they're maybe a couple of years ahead of you, right? And they're trying to basically say, hey, this is how I got there. This is my experience, right? And you're trying to learn from the other person or the other party's experience, right? Whereas coaching, what they really do a good job at is they are asking and diagnosing and trying to help you come to the answer on your own. And you're more naturally, right? If you, if you kind of come up with whatever you think the solution is, you're more bought in. Um, and there's not, one is not better than the other. Um, it's, I, I just think at different times you need both of them, um, both different tool sets. But mentoring is where you're learning from other people's experience, whereas coaching, um, you're trying to come into that self-acquisition on your own through the guidance and through somebody kind of questioning um, your thought process. Would you add anything to that, Abbas, or is that pretty fair? Yeah, I mean, I would say it's a fair description. I would say that um, by, by those definitions, I am a blended mentor slash coach. And I think that's sort of like the operator mindset is it's not mm -hmm. enough for me to just sort of like provide the, the sort of the, the structural ability for someone to self-discover. I can't help but get super deeply involved. So I'd say the lines kind of blend a little bit. Um, and, I, and I enjoy, and I actually enjoy that, which is it's very much like, but it's also bi-directional, right? Like I would say my my mentoring experiences have taught me a lot and have made me sort of a better, uh, you know, better person, a better manager, um, and you know, kind of helped me really unlock a lot of things myself. Things that I would have been blind to in a lot of cases. Yeah, Abbas, you've been formally mentoring folks for at least ten years, and informally, I'm sure for many more than that. Um, you've even done it on sabbatical when you're not necessarily even like formally working full-time. So it sounds like it's something you get a lot of personal fulfillment out of, which is awesome. What are some things you've learned that make that mentor mentee or coach and student relationship work? Like what makes for a good mentor and what makes for a good mentee? Yeah. I mean, I would say like, it's important for, for, for whether you're acting in a mentoring or coaching capacity, I think it's important to, to be able to know your own limits and say like, Hey, I really can't help you with this, right? Um, there's been cases where, um, you know, uh, for example, one of the, the pathways I was focusing on in the last few years has been mentoring women in tech leadership roles. Um, so I think like, you know, it's, it's, it's tough to be in tech and, you know, not, not, not be a man. Um, and in general, and you sort of combine that um, with a leadership role where there's even less diversity as you sort of move up in the ranks. And there's a lot of unique challenges there. And I'd say you know, that's something that, that I've, I've been focusing a lot on helping unlock some of those things, whether it's understanding sort of what's happening in, in the background um, or sort of, you know, helping uh, just being a sounding board to women who are in these positions. Um, but there are specific types of situations that I just can't relate to from a firsthand experience perspective. And I find like that's sort of been a very, 
that's a thing that I've had to develop, which is like, well, just do this without sort of being able to understand like what it actually takes to accomplish a particular action um, in, in the other person's shoes. That's sort of a, a, a thing that I've had to build up as a muscle, which is being able to feel comfortable saying, you know, I think this is what should happen, but I, I can't directly relate to this. And in that sense, um, being able to acknowledge what the limits are of my knowledge. Um, I would say in general, one thing that, that I think works really well and is critical for a mentor-mentee relationship is to think of it as think of it as a job to some extent. Uh, so every relationship that I start off um, and a program that I work with with uh, Everwise, which is now part of Torch, is we do sort of six-month tours of duties where they're one-on-one -on -one relationships. They're set for a six-month period, and they're typically start off with specific goals. What I like to do is make those goals even more concrete in the form essentially of an OKR. We write it down, we decide what the objective is, how we're going to measure progress, have a plan for it and refer back to it all the time. So there's structure around the relationships that we can hold each other accountable for. And I found that to be a great unlock to actually deliver the outcomes that we're both seeking from the relationship. Yeah, and I, I actually wanna ask one more follow-up question really quick to that, because I was thinking to myself when you were talking about the example of like women in leadership in tech and like just generally speaking underrepresented groups, we had, we've had some amazing guests on in the podcast this year talking about like a range of topics revolving around like just equal opportunity in technology. One of the things that's been consistent is that people who are successful tend to have mentors across the board. And I, I guess the thing that puzzles me sometimes a bit is like for folks that maybe don't know how to approach somebody or how to like bring a mentor into their lives. Maybe they're brand new to Silicon Valley. Maybe they just are, you know, a little bit shy. There's, there's a million reasons why somebody might not just be plugged in right away. And some of those reasons may overlap with the reasons that folks who look different or whatever aren't, aren't you know, aren't necessarily in positions of leadership. So my question for you is, do you have advice for folks who are listening to this, who don't have mentors today on like some of the ways that they can approach folks that they look up to, to ask for advice or mentorship, even if it's like informal and lightweight? Yeah, I mean, look, I'll tell you uh, just, just one thing to kick that conversation off. It's very difficult, depending on your background, to ask for a mentoring relationship to begin with. Um, I can tell you culturally, for example, it is almost an admission of weakness to reach out and be like, hey, you know, I could use some guidance from someone because you're supposed to like grind and figure it out. Like that's how sort of like that's sort of like the the first generation immigrant mentality is, you know, you hold your head up high, you know, kind of keep keep the emotions strong and sort of just go in and battle it out on your own. Um, so I'd say like establishing, establishing or deciding that you actually need a mentor is sort of a step in and of itself. And to your point, I think it's important to start off with the baseline that says everyone needs guidance of some type. That's because you, anything you do, the odds are someone else has done it before. Um, unless you happen to be like Elon Musk and you're trying to start like a private, you know, uh, unless you try to start SpaceX and no one's done it before, that's different, right? But if for the most part, there, there's everyone is has someone's path they can choose to follow who can guide them and say, these are pitfalls you want to avoid. Um, so I think the first thing is to identify who do you know who you can say like, this is a person who's, who is walking down the path that I want to go on. It may not be like their life's journey, but like the next, uh, you know, one year of your life kind of mirrors the, the thing that this person did some time ago. Um, and I think then it's a matter of just being comfortable asking for it, asking for that help. Um, I, I like to think that most people are willing to be mentors, even if they've never really thought about it. Um, that if you reach out and you're like, hey, I have some questions about this thing. Do you mind if we just talk about it every little while? 
Um, I think for the most part, the answer you're likely to get is yes. Um, so I think that's the hardest thing to get over is, is this asking for that relationship. Um, and, it, and it's a tough one. I don't know if there's an easy way to do it. I do think some of the companies like Plato um, and, and, and others, uh, the, the Torch Everwise company, for example, as well, they create a platform um, where it makes it, it doesn't feel like it's a weird thing. You're signing up for a service like you're signing up for email, right? I'm going to sign up for mentoring. And they create a platform and a, and a service by which everyone is open to being a mentee and for, and for people who are willing to be mentors. I think the platforms make it a lot easier as well. Yeah, one of, one of the things you brought up, which is which I think is really interesting, and I think it's one of the toughest parts about the whole concept of mentoring in the first place is this weird, when it's formalized, right? It, it creates this weird like power shift where you're the mentor. So by like default, like you probably have, it, it almost puts you as like a, a, at a place of authority versus I'm the mentee and I have to listen. And maybe I don't want to challenge you as much, right? Whereas some of the best, I, I like, I just look at my own personal experience, right? Some of the best mentors I've had, Jason Lemkin, Don Irvin, Brandon Cassidy, like, yes, I've worked with these people, but formally we never said like, hey, you're my mentor and I'm your mentee, right? Like yeah. it was more of like an informal relationship and nine out of 10 times, it's like when I need something uh, that like is really critical and top of mind that I reach out to them, right? Um, but in tandem, sometimes I'm also like, oh, I don't want to reach out to them because they're within the organization, right? And I want to go someone right. outside that has no bias. They, like, so what I'm trying to understand, or just because I think you have this really unique opportunity that you've helped people internally, you've helped people externally, you've helped people on a one-off basis, you've done long-term mentorship, right? So there's, what I'm essentially trying to get at is there's different types of mentorships, right? And some are formal, some are informal. How do you think through what makes the most sense? At, and like, I, I know it's really unfair to ask like a, uh, for something that, that you need more context on, but like, do you have a framework or thought process given your like history and experience of like when you should kind of tap into the different options that we kind of have once we've been open to seeking help? Yeah, I mean, I think about it as like, there, there is different constraints and unlocks you get with different types of mentoring relationships. So I, for example, uh, you know, had a lot of first time leaders that are promoted into those positions and they could use mentoring that is very specific to the role that they've been given within the company. And the ability to have an internal mentor is super powerful because they're within that, that confidentiality umbrella. They can say like anything about the company, their role, the people, everything is sort of okay within those bounds. So that's a great relationship to have for something like that. But if you're having, if you're looking to grow your career and you're sort of running into issues that are internal blockers, you cannot have that as an internal mentoring relationship. I mean, I would like to think I have very high trust relationships with the people I work with and the people who work for me. Um, but even there, it's a rarity where we can have that level of an honest conversation because there's always that hierarchical thing and who, who's, who do you have loyalty to in your responsibilities, right? Um, so I think those things are important then to have as an external unlock, to be able to have an external mentoring relationship. Um, and then I think it's also important to have peer groups that can help each other. Um, I'll tell you one of the most satisfying things that, I, that, that I've had as an experience with the mentoring program that I've had uh, with Everwise, for example, is I've gone through 
several six month stints of, of, of mentees there. So ranging from, uh, you know, like great leaders from, you know, companies like Twilio or Unity um, or Salesforce, um, uh, you know, like great, super strong people um, who are in all these amazing functional roles. And uh, the, the, one of the most powerful things that we did was they started talking to each other. Right. So essentially, and initially without telling me, they sort of met at like a, at another event and realized that, that, that they had a common couple mentor. But now we sort of like every time there's someone new who joins the group, I introduce them to that group. So now we sort of have a, a mentor mentee relationship during a formal stage. And we have an informal one that continues outside where we talk, you know, may not be as frequently, but we'll get on like a Zoom call every few months and have a conversation. So they have a group of people who they know are open to mentoring and, and being mentees and talking to each other as well as me. And those sorts of networks can be really, really powerful. Yeah, yeah I, I can attest to that because uh, one thing I started a couple of weeks ago and I actually stole the idea from Plato and I know we keep going back to it, but they do this thing called like circles, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. And it's it's similar where like you have somebody like that kind of facilitate discussion, but the goal is to do it with your peers. And I, that's, and it's a personal thing. It's subjective, right? But I get so much more out of that because I feel like people are a little more vulnerable versus the one-on-one -on -one relationship. You don't want to go deep. Whereas when it's with peers, right? You can go like, Hey, one week will help X person. The next week will help somebody else. Mm -hmm. So like there's different types of formats. Um, now this is a weird question, but I've always wanted to ask the question of, I think some of the responsibility is also on the mentee. Right. And it's a two part question. So my first part of the question is from your experience, having supported so many people, what has set aside some of the best mentees versus the ones that just didn't, you know, work out. And it's not because of a boss or anything. It's just like, in other words, what makes somebody a really good mentee versus not. Right. And the second part of the question is how do you measure that this relationship is working that like the guidance that you're providing to this person is actually having an impact um, just from your personal experience. Yeah, I mean, look, I think in all these things, we can we can have a desire for, for some sort of change, but you have to actually be open to it and be willing to do the work. So I feel like that's what defines any of these conditions, you know, whether there's going to be any impact at all. Is, uh, is the person open to it? Are they willing to put in the work? Because some of these things are challenging um, and the approaches we may come up may be uncomfortable, right? Like we're trying to unblock something and they're like, you're basically going against the grain for the person in terms of what, what you're asking them to do. Now that's within limits. You don't wanna make someone do something that they're uncomfortable doing, of course. But you know, in terms of being able to do those things, they have to be willing to do the work or articulate like, hey, this is not something that I wanna pursue so we can come up with alternate approaches. That's probably like the number one distinguishing thing for a successful mentee outcome is being willing to do the work and being open to the different perspective. Um, I will say I haven't really had an experience I can think about where that's not been the case because it's so hard to make yourself vulnerable enough to say, I need a mentor, I want a mentor, that generally there, people are already in the mindset of being willing to make those changes. That I would say is pretty rare. Um, and to the second part of your question, like how do you actually know you're making progress? That's where sort of the structure of having like an OKR-like approach or whatever you decide to do, a similar smart goals, however you want to do it. Um, those things really, really matter. So with the mentors where we're doing these in-depth relationships for, if we're doing like a six month outcome that we're trying to achieve, we track it 
every other week explicitly. Like there's a document where we're like, hey, this is what we said we're going to do. This is how we're going to measure that it took place. Did it happen or not? Um, one of the mentees I'm working with right now, she uh, she's an amazing leader at, at Unity, for example, and she is incredibly meticulous about those things. So I expect that normally we can do like one or two things. In her case, I'm pretty sure we can knock out like four or five goals in the time that we're working together in six months because she's very committed, very detailed oriented, and we follow through all the time. Um, and so I actually think like she can overachieve in the outcomes that we would normally aim for within any, any six month period time period. Yeah, that's awesome. I, it sounds like you adjust your approach as a mentor, depending on the personality of the person you're working with. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I would say that's sort of the, 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 the selling person in me, right? The, the go to market adjustments where you adapt to the person you're working with. Yeah, I would say that's certainly true. You do have to kind of adjust the work styles because in, at the end of the day, you're there to help someone and it doesn't help for them to work in entirely your approach. You can guide, but the, the adaptation is super important. Yeah. Um, yeah, that, that's, that's really great advice. I, I'm curious about for you, you've spent some time working within like the kind of I guess I'd call it like product ecosystem of mentorship, whether that's, you know, Play-Doh, you mentioned a couple others. If you could provide maybe some perspective on what you see as kind of the future from a product perspective, like whether that's the experience that you've had with these products or platforms, or if you feel like there's like a glaring gap that kind of needs to be solved, I guess I'd just be curious to get your perspective. It feels like with so many folks moving to kind of more of a remote environment, and, and I think frankly, to some degree, a little bit of like, maybe loneliness, like lack of human connection day to day and, and meeting up with people for like a coffee catch up and having that be like a way to get mentorship versus like a formal scheduled Zoom with like an OKR sheet. And and it seems like having this structure pre-built for folks um, is necessary in some cases. I guess I'd just be curious your perspective on to what degree like this product space is filling the need today in the market and like maybe where there's there's any opportunity that you've experienced or gaps. Yeah, I mean, I would say um, to the question we had about like, you know, how do you sort of find a mentor, the platforms themselves as products, I think they are, they're great. And, I, and I'm a big fan of them. You know, I talk to Kwong and Plato all the time. I've talked to the Everwise team a number of times as well. And it, one of the reasons I, I kind of engage with the platforms on a regular basis is because I do feel like they have the ability to connect people to mentors that they would normally not have access to. Um, and for mentors to say, hey, I want to help someone, but I don't know how to get started. Um, so you get you so you wind up with that two-sided marketplace where both parties are willing to kind of put in the time and the work to help each other out. Um, I, I will say it's sort of um, it's tricky to make that initial connection happen. Um, so Everwise, a platform, for example, they'll they go through like a matching algorithm behind the scenes. I guess they would be like the maybe the eHarmony of uh, of sort of the of sort of the, the matchmaking world where they're spending a lot of time. There's a lot of detailed work. And what you get is not like a list of people to talk to. It's like, hey, this one person we feel is like a match for you. Have an introductory conversation, see if you connect. And if both parties are interested, we'll sort of establish the goals and set up a formal relationship. Um, and I like that. Um, I also like the more open-ended nature of the Plato platform, um, which has more of the example that Plato gave, for example, about the, the circles. That's great, right? You pick a topic, you're in with a group of people, you connect with maybe one or two of them, and you kind of go off and, and have a separate conversation following that. And you have open schedules by which people look at things you might be willing to help with and schedule time, and that can lead to relationships. And all of those have worked out for me for different types of mentoring relationships, so kind of like the ad hoc ones, versus the ones that are super detailed and we engage on, you know, one-on-one -on -one for an extended period of time. 
Um, if there was a gap, I would say the, the gap is in identifying like the types of problems that you can help solve with. Um, it's, you know, it's sort of the similar to like a resume problem, like what do you put on on the skills list, right? Like how do you identify what are the types of problems both a mentee is looking for help with and what a mentor has and then how do you connect those? I think that is still largely underdeveloped. Um, and I don't have like an immediate product suggestion to offer, but I do think that's an area of work that all the teams need to uh, need to figure out. Yeah, I think the what I've found is the um, the more specific, the better as far as like who this community is for, you know, whether that's Plato or or otherwise, like uh, if you can just sort of like feel like you're a part of the community even before you join it because you know folks and you have some affiliations or you really understand it. Um, that works quite well, I've found. But yeah, I think it's just interesting. It's it's never been easier than it is today to get access to sort of quote unquote powerful people, people in positions of leadership, whether that's on Twitter, whether that's on Cameo, if you want Snoop Dogg <laughs> to jump into your sales kickoff, whether that's on, um, you know, wh whatever that may be. And I think that um, the sort of like informal nature of like mentorships and all the goodness that comes out of that, whether it's like job opportunities or introductions or just all of the things that stem out of these relationships that you never really know going into it, um, giving more access to that type of uh, relationship is something that I know Poi is really passionate about. And after talking to you, um, it just validates it more for me. This is this is just a big opportunity to kind of help folks get more access. Um, so uh, listen, Abbas, I, I know we're actually even a little like 15 minutes over here, but this has been super fun and, and um, really appreciate you coming on and sharing your perspectives on uh, everything from mentorship to the journey along the way. Um, and we'd, we'd love to kind of have you back on and in a year and kind of learn more about the the journey and everything that's happened in 2021 but I, one question that we have that we typically like to ask the end is what's what's advice that you would give your younger self so maybe a boss living in africa or having recently moved to canada to go to high school pull them off the schoolyard give some advice like what's one thing you've learned along the journey that you would share with your younger self yeah, I would say like two dimensions, one on sort of like a professional dimension, I would say, um, you know, like a lot of people who enter leadership in, in tech, you sort of wind up getting there because you're good at what you do. And they're like, hey, this team's too big, someone needs to do it. Um, and what I don't think anyone really tells you, because in most tech companies, we don't have great management training programs, is your job as a manager, and this is what I tell the younger version of me, is the first time I became a manager of people, it wasn't to be the best person to do the job and then also tell other people how to do it. It was to basically unlock the potential of my team. Um, and that's sort of like the thing that I wish I could tell myself, because it took me a little while to figure that out. It was basically mm -hmm. my job was not to be the best uh, best at the particular job, but to actually you know go to my team, unblock things, get them to, to sort of like be able to, uh, to utilize their own superpowers and make the team as a unit more successful than it would have been without me there. Um, so that's certainly one thing I'd say on a professional front is one of the lessons that go back and say, you know, figure this out earlier. Um, on more of a personal front, I would say is uh, I would I would go back and tell myself tell myself it's not just all about career stuff. Um, spend more time with like family and experiences um, because that's time you don't get back. So that's sort of I would say I had very very blurred lines early in my career um, in terms of like all work all in 100% of the time you know time off and things like that were not things that I did. Um, and that's time that I, that I, you know, if there's a regret I had, it would be like that. I probably went too far in that dimension. And I'd say, Hey, take a little bit more time to actually enjoy the time with the people who are in your lives around you. 
Yeah, you don't get that time back. That's really good advice. And I can especially relate to that first one around, um, you don't have to be the best individual contributor to be the manager. Like that's, that's something, you know, you kind of have to be willing to lose that, um, that title, right. To become yeah. a really effective manager. And that's a hard thing to let go. If you're a really good high performing individual, especially in a startup, because that's uh, the business feels that, you know, that, um, that transition, just like you do. Yeah. Uh, well, Abbas, this has been really, really fun. Thank you again for for making the time for coming on. Um, if folks want to get in touch with you, uh, I guess one, would you be open to that? And two, what's what's the best way to say hi? Yeah, um, so I, I am open to it. And uh, the, the the benefit of having a unique name in Abbas Hader Ali is I would be the the first search result on Google if you type my na name in. Um, and I'm and generally the best ways to get a hold of me would be LinkedIn, Twitter. They're both sort of open platforms in which I'm I'm happy to connect with folks. Awesome. Yeah, you got that SEO dominance. I love it. Uh, well, thanks again for uh, for coming on board. I hope you have a great uh, end of your year and and um, and yeah, appreciate it. Thanks again. Yeah, Robbie Poyer, thanks for having me on. Have a great year. This week's episode is brought to you by Oracle NetSuite. Oracle NetSuite, I think, solves a really important problem that a lot of startups, business owners, executives face, which is how do you get the information that you need instantly all in one place? Before we upgraded the Oracle NetSuite at my last startup, it used to take us a lot of time to pull the information reports that we needed for our quarterly investment meeting or the report that we wanted to send to both internal employees as well as stakeholders and shareholders at the end of the month. Upgrade to Oracle NetSuite today so you can get the visibility and control you need over your financials, HR, inventory, and everything you need in one place that you can access instantly. Let NetSuite show you how they'll benefit your business with a free product tour at netsuite.com slash scale. Schedule your free product tour right now at netsuite.com slash scale. That is netsuite.com slash scale.